All right, well, today is our 10th and final week in our Untamed Jesus series. So we've, we have covered a lot of material. I hope that you guys have found it interesting and rewarding. Uh, it's definitely been challenging for me to look at some of these passages, uh, but I feel like after going through all of them, uh, that I feel much more equipped personally to respond to questions that people might have about some of the most challenging things that Jesus said. So I hope you guys feel similarly about that. Um, we could probably extend this series even longer if we wanted to, but I do think that we have covered the most shocking of the untamed Jesus moments in the Gospels. However, there is one last topic that I really think we need to talk about before finishing the series. You can't really do a series on the untamed Jesus without touching on this topic. Uh, it's, it's not a topic raised by one particular Jesus moment, but it's a topic that's raised by multiple untamed Jesus moments. And that topic is the topic of hell. There are 11 times in the Gospels where Jesus uses the word Gehenna, which gets translated as hell. And there are many other times where he doesn't explicitly use that word, but he is talking about final judgment, and he uses terms that we would associate with the concept of hell. So he, he says things like the blazing furnace in reference to final judgment, um, the outer darkness, or uh, he talks about a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I think if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we have to take final judgment seriously, and we have to take the concept of hell seriously. Now, I want to be honest about a few things before we get into this. One, this is the longest sermon I've ever prepared. So, <laughs> So I wanted to make it shorter. I thought about breaking it into two pieces, but I just, I don't think I could pull it off. It was sort of right at that awkward length where it's like a sermon and a half. And uh, so I'm, I'm really going to encourage you guys to bear with me and be patient and do your best to handle a lot of information that's going to be given this morning and a lot of information that might have um, elicit an emotional response for you. Um, so I beg, I beg your patience here. I really didn't know how to make it any shorter than what I've written. So that's my first uh, admission. My second admission is that this is a topic that's really actually very, very close to my heart. Uh, I've been a Christian since I was a little kid. And there have been many times during my journey of faith where I have experienced a deep internal struggle over the concept of hell. Uh, more so probably than any other aspect of our faith. Uh, there have been times where the idea of hell has been so unthinkably awful to me that I have found myself arguing with God about it and ruminating about it and even obsessing over it um, and feeling angry at God about it, to be completely honest. And I tell you that because I may say some things this morning that will be hard for you to hear. I may also say some things that, if you are very much of a traditional mindset, might trouble you a little bit. So, 
yeah, it's going to be interesting. I hope you will not be bored. Um, but I just want to be clear from the outset that the things that I'm about to say are not born out of just a week of business as usual. Oh, I got to get ready for a sermon. Let's open some commentator commentaries and read some stuff. The things that I am about to say are born out of at least 10 years worth of thinking about this topic, literally for at least a portion of every day, every single day. Um, so even though I'm not claiming to be infallible here, I could very well make mistakes. And I, I, if you guys think I say something that's out of line, I welcome you to email me throughout the week and we can talk about it more. Um, but you know, I just want to be clear that I'm not being flippant or casual at all about the things I'm about to say. This topic is extremely significant to me. All right, so before we get into this delightful topic, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before you in humility right now, uh, recognizing that you are the creator and we are your creation. And uh, we recognize that our powers of, of reasoning are limited. We recognize that our, our thinking and our minds are sometimes often obscured by, uh, by sin. And God, we just come before you in humility and we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We ask that you would uh, reveal to us truth, that you would help us to be wise and discerning and that you would help us to be open to whatever it is that you want to tell us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to need a lot of water for this sermon. All right, so you might notice from your outlines there's three major parts to this sermon, and the first part is answering the question, what did Jesus really teach about hell? That's probably where we should start. So I... I have tried to condense Jesus' teaching on this subject into three major points, three things that I think we can say confidently that Jesus taught about hell. And the first thing is this. Jesus taught that there would be a final judgment that would separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Uh, there are several places where Jesus teaches this very, very clearly. And I'm going to give two quick examples. So one is the parable of the weeds from Matthew 13, and another is the parable of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25. And these are both passages that at some point I've spoken on here uh, at St. Paul's. Uh, the first one, the parable of the weeds, tells a parable about a farmer allowing wheat and weeds to both grow up in his field. But he says, Jesus says that after a period of time, uh, harvesters will come and they'll separate the wheat from the weeds and they'll take the weeds and they'll throw them into a fiery furnace and burn them up. And when Jesus explains the significance of this parable, what it's all about, he says uh, in Matthew 13, starting in verse 40, he says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Uh, the Son of Man, which is a title for himself, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So that's one example. Jesus clearly seems to be teaching this idea of the separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. And then the other example is the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, uh, starting in verse 31. 
says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so again, same theme, the Son of Man, Jesus coming back. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Uh, and then skipping to verse 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, really brings it home. Uh, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So because of those two examples and others, I don't think that we can get away from the fact that Jesus taught that there would be a final judgment and that at that final judgment, when he returns to earth, there is this separation of righteous from unrighteous, wheat from weeds, sheep from goats. Okay. Second thing we can know for sure. Jesus taught that the fate of the unrighteous at that judgment involves lament and pain. There's this phrase that I referenced earlier, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's used to describe final judgment. Jesus uses this phrase seven times in the Gospels. Uh, now, I think weeping, we all know what that means, lament, right? Gnashing of teeth, that's not an expression that we use today, uh, but it basically means to be in deep anguish or despair. When you think of gnashing of teeth, thinking of somebody being like, ah. So it is not uh, a pleasant experience uh, that the unrighteous have at the judgment. Uh, as you might be wondering, okay, well, is, is hell literally a place of fire? Is it literally a place of fire and darkness? Well, I believe, and uh, most of the scholars that I have read agree, that the fire and darkness are really meant to be taken as, as a, uh, physical expressions of a spiritual reality. So, often Jesus will use very physical terms to refer to a spiritual reality. And we, we have good reason to think that's what's going on here. It's not that literally people are burning in fire, um, but it is expressing something that is extremely unpleasant. <laughs> um, uh, one of the reasons I say that I don't think we should take this literally is because one metaphor for hell is frequently fire, right? And another one is frequently darkness. But those two things don't go together, right? If you have fire, you have light. Uh, so it, it seems like this is a, is a uh, physical expression of a spiritual reality. But either way, it's not good. All right, and then finally, the third thing we can be confident that Jesus taught about hell is that there is a finality to the judgment of the unrighteous. So, in other words, there is no evidence that I can see in Scripture uh, especially from Jesus' teaching, that the goats have another chance to become sheep, uh, or that um, the, wheat has a the weeds have a chance to hop out of the fiery furnace and become weeds. Uh, there is a, what you might say, a final and irreversible nature to the judgment. Uh, you probably remember from Matthew 25, which I just read earlier, uh, Jesus said that the goats would go away to eternal punishment. So there is a sense in Jesus' teaching that um, there's a window of opportunity to do the right thing, 
to respond to God in the right way. But once that window of opportunity closes, there's no going back, as scary as that sounds. Uh, one place where I think we see this very clearly happens just a little bit earlier in Matthew 25, right before the parable of the sheep of the goats. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, and in that parable, it describes these bridesmaids who aren't prepared for the arrival of the groom. And because they're not prepared, they aren't allowed to go into the wedding party. Uh, it says in Matthew 25, starting in verse 11, Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they replied, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you this truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So right there, that is a dramatic illustration of the fact that the opportunity to be ready for judgment is limited. Uh, there's no indication in Jesus' teaching that there's an infinite number of chances to respond to God's invitation uh, after death. Um, some people have tried to argue that, and I would love for that to be true. You know, the, the merciful side of my heart longs for that. Um, but I don't actually see it in Jesus' teaching as much as I would like to. Okay. So, those are the three things that I think we can be confident of about hell from Jesus' teaching. There's a judgment coming. If you end up on the wrong side, it will be very unpleasant. And there is a limited window of opportunity to prepare. I don't know how to be faithful to Jesus' teaching without being honest about those things. Okay. Now, I'm not sure what your reaction is to that right there. Uh, some of you might be nodding your heads, at least internally. I don't see anyone nodding their heads, but internally you may be nodding your head and saying, yes, that is the truth, it must be spoken, and it must not be compromised. And if people don't like it, tough. Now, others of you might be feeling more like I have in the past, when I've struggled with this. And if you are, you might be thinking, Eternal punishment? How could a loving God allow that? Lament and pain forever? Well, if you fall in that second category, I would like to emphasize three points, three reminders that have been extremely helpful for me as I have struggled with this concept. Um, these are things that are like, when, I, when pressure has built up in my brain, wrestling with God over this, these reminders are like valves that release the pressure a little bit. So I hope that they're helpful for you. And if you don't struggle at all with the concept of hell, I think these are still really good things for you to be reminded of. In fact, it might be even more important for you to be reminded of these things. So, the first thing. The idea of anyone going to hell should bother us. As followers of Christ, we know that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we also know that we are commanded not only to love those who love us, but even our enemies, right? Now question, can you love someone if you're okay with the idea of them going to hell? I don't think so. Can you love someone if you're okay with the idea of them starving? No. Is hell worse than starving? I would say so, right? So, of course, if we love people, 
we're going to be bothered by the idea of them going to hell. And I think God wants us to be bothered by that idea. If we're called to be people who love, we are called to be people who get no satisfaction out of hell. I think the Apostle Paul is an incredible example of this mindset. Uh, he went so far as to say in Romans 9, 2 through 4, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Sounds like he has weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So the thing was, most of Paul's ethnic brethren, the people of Israel, they had rejected Christ. And here we see how sad that makes Paul, how devastated he is by that. So notice he doesn't say, those fools, for it, those people who have rejected Christ, they're going to realize they were wrong. Am I right? You know, they're going to get what's coming to them eventually. No. He's like, his heart, he's saying, if I could go to hell to spare them from judgment, I wish that I could. That's how much I care about them. That's how, my, how much my heart longs for them to experience something better than judgment. I think Paul is an incredible example for us of the kind of attitude that we're supposed to have. So if you are bothered by hell, I think that is a healthy sign. Because it's a sign of your love and concern for other people, which is an indicator of spiritual maturity. You should be bothered by the thought of hell and by people going there. I think God, God's love commands us to be bothered by it. Second thing to remember, God doesn't like hell either. So there are three critical verses that I turn to to remind myself of this. Okay, one is from the Old Testament. So I know often we think of the Old Testament as a place where there's a lot of judgment and violence, right? But there's this beautiful verse in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33:11, And it says, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And what we see there is that when it comes to the options of either condemnation or redemption, our God is a God who prefers redemption. Every time. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, no pleasure in condemnation. But rather, what would I rather see? I would rather see redemption. I would rather, rather see them turn from their ways and live. The other two verses that are so key in reminding me that God doesn't like hell either. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then the third verse is similar, 2 Peter 3.9 he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, I will admit, I have read some commentaries that try to understand those verses in a way where they don't really seem to mean what they're saying. Because some people are bothered by the idea that if some people end up in hell and we take these verses literally, then it seems like God isn't really getting what God wants. And I, I don't see a problem there. I think the only reason there's a problem is if we think it's more important to think of God in terms of power than of love. And I always see God's power as secondary to his love, 
or at least I see us as having a misunderstanding sometimes of what true power looks like. True power looks like Jesus dying on the cross, right? <clears throat> so, if you ever read something that tries to argue that all doesn't really mean all in these verses, or want doesn't really mean want, I say there isn't really anything meaningful that these verses can say. And I would encourage you to reject those interpretations. And all of this fits very well with the God that we see revealed through Jesus Christ. I like to emphasize a lot that if we want to know what God is like, we can't do any better than looking at Jesus Christ. Scripture says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. And when we look at Jesus Christ, we see a God who is so unwilling that any should perish, that he is willing to suffer and die on a cross in order to spare us that fate. Right? We see a God who is willing to go through hell so that we don't have to. We see a God who, as he is being killed, prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. This is the exact representation of God. That's what God looks like. So, God doesn't like hell either. He doesn't like it so much that he was willing to go through it so that we don't have to. And then finally, the third thing that is helpful for me to remember is if peace in the world is ever to become a reality, evil must be destroyed. You know, most of us would say that we would love for the world to be a place of justice and peace and love, but the world, that world can never be a reality unless at some point God says, mm, -mm no more to evil, right? And as far as I can tell, there is no way that God will be able to say no, no more to evil without least sending some of humanity away. Because some of humanity, regardless of how much God might want them to turn from their ways and live, will refuse to turn. Or at least, as when I read scripture, that's what I see. Sheep and goats, wheat and weeds. Some people will refuse to turn. And so in order for the kingdom of God to fully arrive, in order for our hearts longing for the kingdom of God to be made a reality, um, some people may have to, to go away. Not because God delights in that, but because there's no other choice. So reminding myself of those three things helps to release the pressure valve in my brain and in my spirit and helps me to trust God. And I hope that those reminders can help you, too. And if you've ever felt like you really like the idea of hell, then I encourage you even more to remind yourself of those three things. Now, okay, for the last part of this sermon, I want to say a few things that could be considered mildly controversial. I'm not going to say anything that violates our statement of faith, but I am going to say some things that might make you go, hmm, I don't know, I don't know. Um, but I think when it comes to the topic of hell and final judgment, these are important things to say, and I feel led to say them simply because of the amount of, of uh, internal struggle that I've had with this issue. I feel like I've been equipped in some ways to, to, to share some things that you might not hear from, from other people. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, but I just feel like I can't be silent about these particular things that I'm going to say right now and be faithful to what God has done in my own life, 
the ways that he has led me, led me to think and what he's been doing in me. So um, the things that I'm going to say, they fall under a broader point, which is this. We should be willing to live with some uncertainty as to how God will sort things out. And there are at least two areas of uncertainty that I think we need to live with when it comes to this topic of final judgment in hell. All right. Ready? The first one is we can't be certain if the unrighteous will suffer forever or if they will eventually be annihilated. Now, traditionally, uh, hell is thought of as this, a terrible place where people suffer forever. But I think it's valuable and important for us to recognize that there are some very thoughtful and very genuine Christian scholars and thinkers who argue that the unrighteous will not suffer forever, but they will suffer for a time and then cease to exist. Okay, and this is what is known as the annihilationist view. And I am not going to stand up here and say, this is what you should think. Um, but I believe there is a case to be made for this perspective from Scripture that is compelling enough that it deserves to be hear, heard and it deserves to be welcomed into the uncertainty that we have about um, how God's going to work everything out. And the reason I say that is because the vast majority of the time when the Bible talks about final judgment, it talks about the unrighteous being destroyed or consumed or perishing. And when you think about it, those are not words that suggest an eternal experience, are they? If something is destroyed, it stops existing. Right? If something is consumed, it's gone. Uh, if something perishes, it wastes away into nothing. Even John 3.16, right, probably the most popular verse in the Bible, uh, the one that gets shared the most to share the gospel, says, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So it doesn't say whoever believes in him should not eternally suffer, but perish. Now, there are definitely a handful of places in scripture that seem to suggest that the experience of hell will be eternal. But there's actually very few of them compared to the number of places that talk about perishing, being consumed, being destroyed. And even in those handful of cases, those who argue for the annihilationist position have some worthwhile arguments, I think, for us to consider. So, for example, Jesus says at the end of the parable of the sheep and the goats, as I already read, um, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, someone arguing for the traditionalist view of hell as eternal experience of suffering might say, well, there it is, right? Plain as day. The unrighteous will experience eternal punishment. But what the annihilationists will say is that the punishment Jesus is talking about is eternal, uh, in, not in its experience, but in its effects. So it's eternal in the sense that the, that the unrighteous will, will be destroyed forever. They are never coming back. 
And one of the things that I think adds a little support to this interpretation is that you might not realize this, but the, the Orthodox Christian view is that everybody, the righteous and the unrighteous, are going to be resurrected from the dead when Jesus returns. And then there is going to be a final judgment. And then Jesus will say to the sheep, you go this way, and to the goats, you go that way. And so when you think of it in those terms, that right now the unrighteous are still going to be resurrected, the idea that that eternal punishment here might mean eternal destruction makes sense, right? Because they already came back, but now they're never coming back, right? Now they are destroyed permanently. Um, now, again, I'm not saying that you have to believe in this view. Um, but I think this is an area that we need to be uncertain about. And, and my study of this particular perspective has, has led me to think that this is worth being uncertain about. And um, I, I also find this view attractive for a couple reasons. And I, I would like to make my case for why I see some more points in its favor. Uh, one is scripture is clear that the only way that any created thing continues to exist is if God chooses to sustain it. Uh, there's a beautiful verse that Paul uh, says in Acts 17, 28. Um, in him we live and move and have our being. And what that suggests is that in any given moment, the only reason that we exist, the only reason that our atoms manage to hold together and create this thing that is you, is because God chooses to sustain you. God chooses to power this creation. He is the force that holds it all together. And the only reason you exist is because of him. And what that means is that if God were to withdraw his life-sustaining power from you, you would cease to exist. There would be no more you. Now, many of us already talk about hell as being the withdrawal of God's presence. Right? We say that it, hell is the experience of being abandoned by God. But the thing is, if we are completely abandoned by God, we don't exist anymore. Because like Paul said, it, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. There's no existence apart from God. So, what that means is um, if the unrighteous are alive for eternity in hell, that can only be because God just chooses to actively sustain them for eternity. And if God were to do that, he would not be sustaining them for the purpose of redemption. He would not be sustaining them for the purpose of correction. He would be only sustaining them for the purpose of retributive punishment. Now, that might be what God does. Uh, and if that is what he does, I believe he does it because it is the best and it is the right thing to do. And even if I don't understand that, I need to trust him on it. But at the same time, I, I have to admit, I do have trouble, and I, during my times where I've struggled with the concept of hell, I have trouble reconciling that picture of God, a God who keeps people alive eternally, who sustains them for no other purpose than retributive punishment, uh, with the God that we see revealed through Jesus. Uh, because the God that is real, revealed through Jesus is a God who would rather go to hell than see people go there. And he is a God who prays as he's being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And it is hard for me to, to imagine how that God, uh, who does those things that we see revealed through Jesus Christ, would also sustain the wicked for eternity. 
I'm not saying that he doesn't. I'm just saying it's hard to imagine how those things would go together. And I also want to say again, uh, one thing about the annihilationist position to remember is it's not a position that just says the wicked uh, cease to exist and they're never punished. There is, a, in, in the annihilationist position, the belief that those who are um, condemned have a period of time where there's that weeping and gnashing of teeth, where they realize what they're missing out on, where they feel the weight of their sin. Um, and that's not something we want for ourselves or for anyone. Um, all right. Uh, so my final word on the subject of annihilationism is I'm convinced that annihilationism should be considered a legitimate, non-heretical option for people who are trying to interpret the Bible the best they can. That's all I'm saying. And just so no one accuses me of being a heretic, um, some people who would agree with me on this are the late John Stott, who uh, was a leader of evangelica evangelicalism within the Church of England, uh, kind of like a Billy Graham of England. And uh, I read tons of John Stott books in, in, in seminary. Um, and then as well as uh, Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle, who wrote a book in 2011 called Erasing Hell. Not because they wanted to erase hell, but because they were responding to what they thought was a trend in our culture to erase hell from Christian theology. Um, the book was actually, there it is, uh, meant to be a critical response to a book that was released in 2011 by pastor and author Rob Bell. He wrote a book called Love Wins. And uh, in that book, Bell came pretty close to rejecting completely the concept of hell. Um, and Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle wrote Erasing Hell as a corrective to that book. And they said that their goal was to let scripture alone determine their view of the afterlife. Not tradition, but the Bible. And their conclusion was that although they leaned towards the traditional view of hell as an eternal experience, that they believed scripture was ambiguous enough that annihilationism should, should be considered a legitimate option. So I submit all that to us for our consideration, prayerful consideration. The second thing that I think we have have some uncertainty about, and bear with me, I'm almost done, this is my last point. We can't be certain of who is going to hell. Now let me be clear, okay? We believe that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that makes sense, because when you think about it, it would be a lot of trouble for God to become incarnate and then come and live and die and suffer on a cross if that wasn't necessary for our salvation. Um, what Jesus did was essential in order for us to not experience hell. There is no other way not to experience hell except through Jesus and his sacrifice. And because of that, we will be judged primarily on how we respond to Jesus Christ. You might remember that two weeks ago I preached on the unforgivable sin. And you remember that, that the verse that came right before that said, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But the one sin that is unforgivable is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I explained that my interpretation of that is that there is no sin so awful that it cannot be forgiven. The only sin that cannot be forgiven, the only sin that has no potential of being forgiven, is the permanent rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord. 
And so how we respond to Jesus, because he is the only way to God, is the key determining factor in whether we are a sheep or a goat, a wheat or a weed. Okay. But here's where the uncertainty comes in. How a person responds to Jesus Christ is something only Jesus Christ has the authority to determine. We don't have the authority to determine that. For example, imagine this scenario. A young, one, a young woman grows up in a home where her stepfather is a pastor. And her main experience with a representative of Jesus is her stepfather. But imagine that her stepfather is physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive. He's a hypocrite. And imagine that that young woman grows up and then she wants nothing to do with Christianity or the church. Because for her, those things are synonymous with her abusive father. Has she rejected Jesus? I would say the only appropriate answer to that is Jesus alone has the authority to determine that. And so we need to be very careful not to stand in Jesus' place. He is the judge, not us. And I believe that God is going to deal with each one of us as unique individuals with unique stories when he determines at the final judgment whether or not we have truly received or rejected Jesus Christ. So I realize I've gone long this morning, but this is a weighty topic and there's a lot to say. And I know that I have just skimmed the surface, really. But uh, to close, I have two final things I want to say. The first is that if you listen to this message and you got scared at all about your eternal destiny, I just encourage you to let that fear drive you to Jesus. Jesus wants you to trust in him for salvation. He doesn't want you to live your life in an ongoing fear of hell. Uh, he wants you to come to him. He wants you to confess your sin and recognize that through him there is no condemnation. Okay, he wants you to trust in him and be free from that fear. And second, I want to close with a verse that I think ties this all together. It's the same verse that Keith read for our invocation. It's Isaiah 55, 8-9. through 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God's thoughts are higher than ours. He knows what the right thing is to do, and if the right thing involves final judgment and weeping and gnashing of teeth, then that's the right thing, even if we don't understand it. So if we struggle with the idea of hell, we should remind ourselves of that verse. But, at the same time, we should also remind ourselves of the verse that comes right before this one. See, verse 8 starts with that little word for. It's referencing what comes in the previous verse. And here's what the previous verse says. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
and neither are your ways my ways. So God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways, not because he's less merciful than us, but because he's more merciful. Because he is a God who freely pardons any who turn to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. And we thank you that we can trust that you are truly good. We thank you that you have revealed yourself through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can look to him to know what you are like. And God, I ask that if there is anyone here who has not put their trust in Jesus for salvation from sin and from death and destruction and whatever final judgment entails, I pray that this morning they would put their trust in you. God, I pray that any fear that we might have would drive us to you. And I pray that that fear would drive us to you because we trust in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.